Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for three. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Now, for those of you who don't know about the show, the show is in two parts, not equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion. And tonight, we're going to be talking about two presidents. Former President George Herbert Walker Bush, who we recently lost, and going back, you know, 150, 200 years ago, Andrew Jackson. So we're going to be talking about George W. George Herbert Walker Bush, I'm sorry, and Andrew Jackson. In the meanwhile, let's talk a little bit about estate planning. And Beth, do you have a couple of email questions for us? Yes, I do. Um, the first one is from Ann. Hello. I have never had a will done before. Do all of my accounts and assets need to be mentioned? And if they're not mentioned in the will, how will my executor know what my assets are once I'm gone? Thank you. Okay, the first part of the question, they do not have to be named in the will. You can say your will can be as simple as I leave everything that I have in my name alone to my two children, let's say, for the sake of argument in two equal shares, share and share alike. And that could be, you know, a will can be as simple as I leave everything to my two children in two equal shares. I point my two children to be executors. Could you be more specific about your will? I leave this account to this person. I leave that account to that person. Yes. But as far as a will is concerned, it's usually a backup plan. It's whatever's left in your name. Assets that have named beneficiaries go to the named beneficiaries. They do not go through your will. One of the things, how does your executor know? Well, there are a couple of different ways to do it. One, your final tax return is ordinarily going to cover all your assets because if you get dividends, it's going to be reported on your tax return. If you have interest, if you have investments, it's going to be reported on your final tax return. So that by itself is a fairly good checklist for the executor. The one thing that sometimes slips through the cracks, U.S. savings bonds, because you know, like if, if you don't know the savings bonds are there, and of course, until you cash them in, you're not paying income tax on them. So that's the one thing. If you have U.S. savings bonds, you want to, may want to have a letter for your executor where you keep the bonds, whether in a safe deposit box, whether they're in the, the attic or, or whatever. You may want to have that. And you may want to have a list of your assets anyway for your executor to work on. But, you know, you can put your different accounts into your will, and that may not do any, your executor any good because let's say the bank changes names. And, you know, some banks have changed names four or five times. You, may, you don't want to change your will just because the bank happened to change its name. Also, you, you know, at the same time, uh, safe deposit boxes. 
it's okay to have a safe deposit box, but if you pass away, there's no automatic right to get into a safe deposit box. Even if you have a joint name on the box, you have to go to court to open it up. So yes, it's usually a safe place to keep things, but for the most part, it's a hassle trying to get into a a safe deposit box after you're gone. So just keep that in mind. But in any event, make a list of assets for your executor. Your tax return, a lot of times if you just attach the tax return to your to your financial statements or whatever, they're going to have it. U.S. savings bonds are one of the things that you know may not be on your, on your tax return. I haven't seen an awful lot of bear bonds recently, but if you had some bear bonds, I guess you'd, you know, you'd list them. It's not as hard as you may think. Almost everything comes in the mail. Sooner or later, you're going to get a statement. Almost everything comes in the mail. Each week, Kevin McCullough takes a phone call from one of our listeners, and he plays that question on his show, and we try to answer the questionnaire. So let's replay Kevin McCullough's question of the week. Go ahead, Kevin. Every week on Kevin McCullough Radio, we promise you that we're going to get an answer for you, a legal uh, answer to some question that you have with Mike Connors, Connors and Sullivan. He's heard Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570 The Mission and Saturday evenings at 6 on AM 970 The Answer. And Mike, this week's question comes from Chris. He says, Mike, what criteria must a surrogate use to make health care decisions? Seems kind of simple, is it? Well, it's not really simple. You know, a lot of these decisions are not easy. I mean, the toughest decision I think some people have to make, if you're in a coma, and, 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 you know, this goes against my grain, but if you're in a coma, there's some people say, I would like to withdraw artificial hydration nutrition and affect be starved to death. And that's one of the toughest decisions. And, and, of course, you should go to the person who, you know, originally signed the writing or whatever and try to figure out what their intent was. But that's, it's not an easy decision, and it's certainly not an easy decision, you know, ahead of time. It, it, it takes some prayer and thought. And I, I think too many people sign these things, you know, if, if I'm going to call them, I want to withdraw artificial hydration and nutrition. And I, I've heard, you you know Father Frank Pavone. He was at Terry Shiloh's deathbed. Sure. Yep. It was a horrible death. It was. And I guess my guess in the question, though, if it's simple or not, is if the surrogate is going according to the wishes of the person, if it's in writing, it could be simple. If it's uh, and that doesn't mean it's easy, but uh, it could be clear cut. Yeah, it might be clear cut. But even then, I think a lot of people sign some of these living will declarations and they really don't know what they're what they're signing. But you've got to use the, the best judgment you can have under the circumstances. You have to play the cards that are in front of you. Does the doctor said? You know, somebody may be in a coma. Do they have a chance to come out? Is, you know, is it brain activity? There's so many things involved, but you have to use your best discretion in accordance with the instruction given you by the person who made the document in the first right. place. All right, friends, maybe you got questions. One of the best ways to be prepared is to plan, and that's what Connors and Sullivan can help you do. 718-238-6500 for their main office. 718-238-6500. Convenient offices in five different locations across the five boroughs. And you can also send your questions to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough for allowing to ask a question on each one of his shows. Now, Beth, you got another question. Let's see if we can get that in. Okay. Hi, Mike. Is my state going to have to pay federal taxes when I die? Are there steps I can take to avoid federal estate taxes? Thanks, William. Okay. One, federal estate taxes. Right now, the federal estate tax is $11,000,000. 
250000 Of course, it's going to be adjusted for inflation in a matter of days. But roughly $11,250,000 goes out tax-free. So if your estate is under $11 million, you don't have to do very much as far as federal estate taxes. Where you have to be careful, New York State imposes a death tax over $5,250,000. So that's where you got to be a little careful. Because a lot of people, they get lulled by the federal estate taxes, $11 million, and they don't realize New York State imposes a death tax over $5 million and change. And if you fall over that number, you can really get hammered because New York State's out to get you. So yes, and you can make gifts. You, one of the ways you can reduce your estate tax, you can make gifts. $15,000 a year can be made to each person that you want to leave in your plan. That's one way of reducing. Of course, that's 15000 for husband, 15000 for wife. Also, you know, if you give money to a charity, that reduces the estate tax. And in New York, sometimes it, it just a little bit of creation. Somebody has an, uh, you know, an estate of five million five hundred thousand dollars. If you give two hundred fifty thousand dollars to charity, you might reduce your estate tax by three hundred thousand dollars. In other words, your kids might get a refund on that. And I know the math is crazy on that, but believe me, that's the way it is. And if you want to talk about that, you can, you know, always give us a call at Connors and Sullivan. Beth, where do they email us a question? Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. This is a relatively new one, so because we changed it. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. Okay, so we're going to go to our interviews right now. We're going to be talking to Brad Burser about President Andrew Jackson. And we're going to ha- replay a taped interview we did with Governor John Sununu, who was George Herbert Walker's Bush chief of staff. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome 
to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. On this show, a lot of times we've talked about the Revolutionary War and we've talked about the Civil War, but we haven't spent a lot of time on the years between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, and, and we're going to correct it today and talking about a controversial figure, the most important president of that part of uh, that time in history, Andrew Jackson. And with us is Hillsdale College professor Brad Bursa. How are you doing today, sir? Mike, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, so what's the name of your book? In Defense of Andrew Jackson. So, it, yeah, it came out from Regnery last September. It wasn't the title that I had originally wanted, but it's the one the publisher wanted, and I think it's worked well. So, but it is kind of a challenge, right? It's like daring people to hit me in the face. Okay, so now, right now, who's attacking Andrew Jackson? Why does he have to be defended? <laughs> well, so there, Andrew Jackson has gone through really a whole series of people loving and hating him. Uh, really, ever since he came onto the public field back in the 1790s, there's never really been a middle ground. Most recently, though, uh, Jackson's star has really fallen since about the la- late 1990s up until today. A number of historians, originally from the new left, but now just kind of permeating mainstream historia, uh, historians overall, have really thought of Jackson uh, only in terms of his aggression and his violence. So he's kind of become the symbol of everything that was wrong with America in the early 19th century. He's taken on a He's always been mythological, but generally that myth has been positive. Now it's becoming very negative. And uh, all right, you're talking about the left. Why? why uh, of course, a lot of people criticize him, his, his handling of, of the Trail of Tears. Uh, sure. Of course, he's a general and all generals are bad guys. But 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 why is he being vilified today? <laughs> well, there was a movement in the 1960s and it had to do with not only the black power movement, but also the, the American Indian movement, especially what was going on in places like Pine Ridge and other places where a lot of the American Indians were demonstrating in the late 60s and early 70s. And a lot of younger historians then, now, of course, they're retired or close to retirement. A lot of younger historians then were trying to figure out where did America go wrong? They were looking at the Vietnam War, wondering if there was something in our DNA that had always disliked indigenous peoples, had always liked expansion. And they kind of gravitated towards Jackson as the boogeyman. That really took a while to permeate through American culture. But as those new leftists became predominant in academia and started writing the textbooks, not only for college, but for high school, it became kind of the norm. And what I find now so different, so I'm 51, and what I find now so different from when I was in college, Jackson was at least respected then, and people took him seriously now saying Jackson, it's not quite as bad as, say, Hitler, <laughs> but there, there's, a, there's a visceral reaction there on people's part. And generally, they don't know what they're talking about, but they have good intentions. They just know that Jackson had done this terrible thing, and so they kind of place all kinds of blame, all kinds of sins on him, That some of which he's guilty of, but a lot not. He's really carrying the burden of everything wrong with America. Andrew Jackson, hero of the War of 1812, probably the greatest American victory at the Battle of New Orleans, whether it happened before or after the war ended. But yeah, that's right. Do you have any comment on that? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Brian Kilmeade has done a book recently that's excellent, just looking at Jackson's victory at New Orleans. And I would certainly recommend that to you or any of your listeners. I deal with it a little bit in my book. Uh, it's one of the things that I would love to have dealt with more. Of course, I was giving an overview, but there's no doubt whatever wrong Jackson may have done in his life, 
his victory at New Orleans is so stunning that I think even the British, who had really dismissed this as a second, third-rate power, still the colonials who would come back at some point, that that victory of Jackson was so decisive that the British had no choice but to take it seriously after that. And ironically, one of the great things that comes out of our really lopsided victory against the British, not only do we gain their admiration, but in many ways we gain their friendship. Uh, it's still sticky for quite a while, but it's where we could begin the modern Anglo-American alliance. We can see it beginning at the end of the War of 1812. All right. So Jackson, hero, War of 1812. What does he do right after you know the war? Yeah, so that's a great question, Mike. It's hard to trace some of his movements. We have all of his letters and we know what he's thinking. But here's where it gets difficult. A lot of us, and I think especially those of us who study later American history, we really want to find a kind of normalcy in Jackson's military strategy and in the army that he's using. But it's really chaotic at the time. Even during the War of 1812, it's never quite clear what is militia and what is army, what is Tennessee, what is the local group of people who are fighting. So Jackson has a kind of nominal position in the U.S. Army, but he's really much more of a militia leader. And after the War of 1812, he continues with that militia, and they move into uh, – they go against the Indians, then they move against Florida. He's willing to go on to Cuba, but President Monroe stops him. So there's a, this is a man on the move without any question. He's, he's a, a fundamentally an expansionist, but in a kind of frontier way. How does he get involved in politics? Well, he had actually been elected to the House and the Senate in the 1790s when he was a very young man. Uh, he did not like it. He went to, Washington, or to New York then in the Capitol, really was not a fan of what was going on there, had tried to ingratiate himself with Jefferson and some others. But most of the, the kind of New York Capitol scene, what would now be the D.C. scene, most of them thought of him as kind of a, a country bumpkin. But he, even as a young man, uh, he had always been, you know, even at age 22, 23, he'd been seen as kind of a, a great patriarchal figure on the frontier of Tennessee. And that was always his home base, that frontier, uh, and especially in Nashville. And so he's in politics for a bit. Then he leaves to go work in the military and to make his business and uh, make his business thrive. And he's very successful as a plantation owner. And then he comes back and really gets involved in politics in the 1820s after he's made a name for himself as a war hero. We should talk about, I guess, the, the election of 1824. And, you know, a lot of people sure. think that today everything is contentious and nobody gets along. But, of course, in 1824, everybody was a gentleman and everything was, was a polite <laughs> society, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I say sarcastically. Right. <laughs> No, it was, uh, you know, it's funny. I Obviously, the 2016 election was pretty nasty, but I've never seen anything as nasty as the 1824 and 28 elections. They were just brutal. And they were brutal because there weren't really, there were politics, but there weren't party politics yet. That was still very slowly developing. We wouldn't have real party politics in the way we recognize now until the late 1830s, really until Jackson's gone. Though the Democratic Party is forming under him, it's it's really it's beyond what he's doing. And so a lot of the politics we see in 1824 and 28 are just they're not even contained. It's not an us versus them. It's us against them, them, them. And, them. and it, it's a very divisive place. 
Plus, it was unacceptable for a person who had been nominated for the presidency to actually run for office. So, and Jackson was an old style, small R Republican. He certainly did not believe that it was, it was what a gentleman should do in terms of running for office. That was something you should never do. If you're asked to serve, you serve, but you do it for a very limited amount of time and then you go home, but you never seek office. And Jackson actually lived up to that really well. It's not just, those weren't just empty words for him. He really did live that out. What's the result in 1824? Who's running and who wins? Yeah, so in 1824, the the real contest is between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. But John Quincy Adams, who's a, a really good figure, I think personally, there's a lot of his politics I would disagree with now, but I think he was a really good, very good figure, a good person. And Jackson was too in his own way. But John Quincy Adams had really believed that the presidency was his in 1824. So there was a kind of there was a norm that had started right after Washington and Adams that anybody who served as secretary of state would be the next president. So it was a very powerful position. And John Quincy Adams had been an amazing secretary of state, maybe one of the best we've ever had. And so coming out of that, out of the Monroe administration, he really did kind of see it as his turn to become president, even though he didn't run for it. But the election became so involved and so contentious because it's not just the difference between, say, the old style elite and the frontier, which is what it becomes. But because John Quincy Adams is the son of John Adams, one of the founders, and Andrew Jackson seems to be this kind of upstart figure from the West and very violent. Uh, these things were worrisome to a lot of Americans. And Jackson made no bones about this. He said, look, if I'm elected, I will clean house in Washington. And anyone who has a position right now in Washington as a bureaucrat or holds an office, uh, you're basically your tenure's over. So he was going to make some very radical changes, whereas John Quincy Adams, having grown up in New England, not nobility because they never had the money, but kind of upper crust New England society, he would have probably maintained and did much of the status quo that was already there under the previous presidents. Jackson was going to shake everything up. How did John Quincy Adams win? Well, he didn't win the popular vote. No, it came very close. Uh, So there were four people running or at least four people being run would be the better way of putting it, more accurate way at least. So four people were being run, and Andrew Jackson ends up with 99 electoral votes. John Quincy Adams gets 84, and then the other two candidates split the rest. And it's not decisive enough, even though Andrew Jackson obviously has more votes than John Quincy Adams, it's not enough for him to gain the presidency. And so it was thrown into the House of Representatives. And the way that the House, you know, this is all still relatively new. The Republic's only about 50 years old at this point. They're still trying to figure out a lot of things. When it's thrown into the House, they decide that each state will get one vote. And that's what happens. And yet Kentucky, which is under Henry Clay's domination, throws its vote for John Quincy Adams, even though Quincy Adams had probably not received more than a handful of popular votes in that state. It was clear that that state would have gone for Andrew Jackson, their neighbor from Tennessee, but instead Clay through Tennessee, or excuse me, through Kentucky 
to John Quincy Adams, and that's what changed the election. It was known at the time, in 1825, it became known as the corrupt bargain. And Jackson was pretty disgusted with it all, but he just returned back to Tennessee and kind of let Washington do its own thing after that. But he comes back again in 1828. That's right. He is run again. uh, And always, this is the Tennessee legislature and people from Tennessee who are moving all of this. And so in 1828, they make sure that he is the main challenger against John Quincy Adams. And he wins decisively. There's no question about that. In 1828, it's still a really nasty, nasty election. Not quite as bad as 1824, but one of the results, unfortunately, and this would this would really sour Jackson in a lot of ways. He was already rather bitter against politics in Washington, D.C., but right around Thanksgiving, right after he had been elected president, his wife, who was his best friend and really a, an amazing intellect and person in and of herself, she ended up coming across a tract R-A-C-T, that she uh, found in Nashville, and it was about her, all made up. But it was essentially that she was a a woman of ill repute, she was a prostitute, uh, and she actually had a heart attack. She was reading this, and it shocked her so much. She was actually a very devout evangelical uh, Presbyterian, but she read this, uh, she had a heart attack, and she died four days later, uh, resulting directly from that heart attack. (laughs) Jackson, yeah, this this was horrible for him. So when he ended up going to Washington, D.C. in 1829, he wore black for the first year and not a show. I mean, this this truly was his best friend and his confidant. So this was a major blow to him. All right. So Andrew Jackson's president. Has he changed the presidency? Yeah, Mike, that's a tough question, because this is where I think historians really divide. So in the 1930s, under the New Deal, so in America under the New Deal, There were a number of historians, mostly led by Arthur Schlesinger Sr. and Arthur Schlesinger Jr., another pretty important figure at the time that we've mostly forgotten, a guy named Bernard DeVoto, great writer. But they were trying to find a precedent for Franklin Roosevelt's extremely aggressive presidency and the concentration of power in the executive office. So they went back 100 years early, and they said, look, Andrew Jackson was one of these kind of really, really strong presidents, and therefore he is the forerunner to Franklin Roosevelt. And that, so it's very hard to go back and look at Jackson without kind of seeing it through those New Deal eyes, simply because that's how his modern reputation started. But yet, if you look at Jackson, when he went into the presidency, he was a lot like John Marshall in the Supreme Court. He didn't want the presidency to be superior over the other two branches of government, He was really looking for a kind of form of equality, just as Marshall was with the Supreme Court. So this is why at the time, when Marshall rules in a couple of different court cases against Jackson, Jackson just ignores it. And that seems shocking to us today in 2018, but that was not uncommon at all in the 19th century because no one was really certain who had the final say. And most people argued there was no final say. It was just part of living in a constitutional republic, that there are certain things that have to remain unanswered. So Jackson seems to be a powerful president in part because he goes against the Supreme Court. But and he was powerful, especially compared to his predecessors. But it was a power in a way that was kind of an anti-power, if that makes sense, Mike. He went in and took things down more than he built them up. 
So he took out a lot of the bureaucrats. He certainly got rid of a lot of the corruption in D.C. There's no question about that. Even his enemies will admit that. So he did use the presidency, but really to tear things down in in a good way, from my perspective, more than to build them up. During his presidency, and I guess this is one of the reasons why the left criticizes him so much, Trail of Tears. Can you explain that? Sure. It is, you know, there's no way to justify it. There's only a way to explain it, I think. Uh, So the Trail of Tears, actually the technical Trail of Tears, which was the removal of the Cherokee, happened under Martin Van Buren, not under Jackson. But we always associate it with Jackson because Jackson had gotten through Congress right away, gotten through a bill called the Indian Removal Act. And there's a lot of things that we can say about this. So I think I'll just start with this, Mike. The most important thing is it was a disaster. And we can look, for example, to the Choctaw, who were one of the first peoples removed. So there were four really important tribes in the South, the major tribes, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, and the Cherokee. And the Choctaw were the first to be removed. And they started out in the South in 1830 with roughly 18,000 members of that tribe. And by the following summer, so summer of 1831, they were down to about 6,000. So they had lost unacceptable losses. They About two-thirds of their tribe had been killed during the removal, mostly because of weather and poor conditions, and then arriving in Oklahoma and being killed there, either by the Indians that were already there or by the weather. So any way you look at it, it is a total disaster. But Andrew Jackson's idea originally, and he's not He's not racist in the way that we throw that word around now. Um, and I think even by a strict definition of racist, he's not racist. Uh, and he really did have a, a great respect for the American Indian, especially when he fought them. But he also believed that culturally they were not as advanced as Europeans. And that was a really common thought at the time. Jefferson had believed it. Washington, it was just you would have been uh, really in the minority to not have believed that. And so his idea was, look, if we leave the American Indians, for example, in Georgia, the Georgians are just going to have a field day and abuse them and just pick away at their culture until there's really nothing left. And so Jackson's response was the best thing to do is to remove all of these peoples from their, their native habitat where they're being demographically crushed by white Europeans, and we should move them out to the Great Plains. And there, they'll have a lot of time to adapt culturally. That was the idea. And it, obviously, the implementation of the program was terrible. But the idea was at least a legitimate and a just one originally, I think, uh, in trying to figure out how do we deal with this problem, knowing that there are all kinds of difficulties, problems, nuances, and so forth that would cause even greater problems. But they had to figure that out. It was not easy by any means. Okay, Brad, we're running out of time, unfortunately. But can you summarize, why did you write the book defending <laughs> the defense of Andrew yeah, Jackson? No, thanks, Mike. I, I'm laughing because I, I've been teaching Jacksonian America for 20 years, and I, I've had a great time doing it. So I teach the whole, basically from the War of 1812 to the Mexican War. And I had generally taught Jackson as... Uh, kind of a bad guy. I, mean, I really had taught him that way. And, and then I finally decided, and this was through some people encouraging me, you know, rather than relying on other historians, maybe I should go back and look at his letters and his diaries, which is exactly what the, the 
publisher of Rignery, Harry Crocker, asked me to do. And once I started reading Jackson, actually reading Jackson, I was just blown away uh, by, first of all, how violent he was, but second of all, how honest he was. And I, I could never, no matter how much I read Jackson, I just kept finding, whether I agreed with him or not on his policies, the guy was just who he was. I think he was constitutionally incapable of being dishonest. And, you know, I guess I prefer that to a lot of these people who just go into politics for the manipulation of it, whatever their <laughs> policies. So uh, I like Jackson. I mean, there's, there's a lot to him to respect, even if we can disagree with him on a lot of issues. The name of the book, In Defense of Andrew Jackson, the author, Brad Bertzer from Hillsdale College. Thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Oh, Mike, my pleasure. Thank you so much. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia once again call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement frank melia nmls number 62591 all loans provided by quantic bank nmls number 403503 do you have somewhere to sleep did you eat today are you making ends meet for thousands of new yorkers the answer is no for children and youth adults seniors people struggling with addiction or mental illness and for the isolated catholic charities of brooklyn and queens is there with 160 programs and more than 4500 units of affordable housing catholic charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation we help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Right now, we're very pleased to have former White House Chief of Staff, former Governor of the State of New Hampshire, John Sununu, and he's come out with a book called The Quiet Man. How are you doing today, Governor? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. A lot of people in the audience probably know what the book's about, but who is the quiet man? Well, the book is about um, the president I served as chief of staff for, President George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States. Uh, most people refer to him as old President Bush in contrast with young President Bush. But uh, I call him the quiet man because, frankly, um, he, he, he was an individual, a president that believed uh, in having his performance speak for itself and really hated to talk about what he accomplished, hated to brag. And uh, I felt uh, now that history was getting a better perspective on him, that it would be good for me to put between uh, two covers of a book 
uh, in one place where people could find it all together, all, all of his great accomplishments, including not just his foreign policy accomplishments, but his great domestic policy achievements. All right. Now, probably no man ever came to the presidency better prepared for the job than George Herbert Walker Bush. I don't think anybody can disagree with that. No, his background was really quite exceptional. He was the youngest Navy flyer uh, during World War II. He, he actually uh, enlisted in the Navy, signed up uh, right after he graduated from high school. He flew 58 combat missions, got shot down, and amazingly was rescued by a sub with a camera on it. And so there's a, a fantastic clip of, of him being rescued in the Pacific. Uh, he was our envoy to China. He was chairman of the Republican National Committee. He was uh, the head of the CIA. He served two terms as a vice president. Uh, he had been elected to Congress. So this was a man that, that uh, had a tremendous record of public service even before he became president. All right. Now, I, I know the, the basis of the book in history, or at least in the modern media, George... Your George Bush is maybe not as highly rated as some other people, and I think your book is going to try to correct the record. I think so. I think it, clearly uh, the cases can be quite easily made that of all the one-term presidents, he was by far the most outstanding. And I would suggest that even though he only served one term, his total performance really ranks amongst the greatest. Um, everyone knows of his tremendous success in foreign policy and in nurturing the collapse of the Soviet Union um, at a time when, when it was uh, 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 the process was not as simple as people ex uh, uh, looking back as some people think it was, and, and I try to explain the complicated aspects of it. Uh, he also made sure that the aggression of Saddam Hussein into Kuwait trying to take over what would have been 25 or 30 percent of the total oil supply of the world, uh, Kuwait plus what, what he had in Iraq. But George Bush also passed uh, more domestic legislation more and more significant domestic legislation than any president except Lyndon Johnson and uh, Franklin Roosevelt. So, so his achievements on the domestic side were somewhat overshadowed by what he did in foreign policy, and I thought it would be best to kind of package them as, as one uh, clear collection of the facts of history so people could see it all together. Now, I know a lot of people have short memories, and in fact, people didn't seem to remember it a couple of years later, but the success of the Gulf War was astonishing at the time. It, it came about because George Bush knew that, that uh, the world had begun to think begun to think that the United States was not living up to its responsibilities as a superpower, that after Vietnam we were completely unwilling to project power. Uh, but he also saw the specific crisis in hand, uh, that you couldn't let someone like Saddam Hussein uh, control the world's economy by controlling so much oil. And frankly, just the fundamental fact that you could not let aggression like that stand, and his famous line, this aggression will not stand, he drew the line in the sand, and then he made sure uh, that he fulfilled his commitment, and, and he slowly built up our troops in the Middle East, and then um, in, in what was effectively a four- or five-day battle, uh, kicked Saddam Hussein out of there. And then, I think, uh, to his great credit, even though he got criticized at the time for it, 
he was smart enough not to chase Saddam into Baghdad and get caught in the quicksand of an occupation at that time. And yet at the same time, I remember he was criticized very heavily for that. Well, he was, and now uh, even his critics that look back recognize that uh, that was really a wise move. So uh, history has a way of sometimes um, uh, correcting, if you will, the excesses of the emotional press of the day. Now, some people would say, you know, well, the collapse of the Soviet Union was inevitable and it was going to happen. So what really did George Bush have to do with it? Well, it really wasn't inevitable. And if you read even Gorbachev's memoirs, he talks about uh, the concerns he had with the hardliners who were not really excited with uh, Gorbachev's inclination to try and open up the Soviet's economy to the West and become a sharing partner in economic prosperity. Uh, Gorbachev thought that the economic line uh, route would be a better route for Russia than the route of constant confrontation. But the hardliners uh, were not happy with it. Bush's art form, if you will, was bringing together the NATO allies, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, Francois Mitterrand in France, uh, Helmut Kohl in Germany, uh, to uh, come together on a strategy to encourage Gorbachev to go quickly with some of the changes that he might be inclined to do, and then to do it in such a way that it did not create uh, a, an excuse, if you will, for the hardliners to prevent Gorbachev from going further. And the way he managed that is really uh, a classic example of smart diplomacy by a smart American president. Again, you were talking about his record with Congress, and he was able to compromise with Congress, which maybe led to his defeat in the next election. Well, Congress at the time was completely controlled by the Democrats. Uh, Tom Foley, the Speaker of the House, the Democratic Speaker of the House, uh, had a majority of 260 to 175 in the House, and George Mitchell, the Democratic leader in the Senate, had 55-45. And, uh, and they were, you know, in, in the nicest sense of the word, the best sense of the word, real professional politicians, but they were also um, uh, tough, tough partisan politicians. And so it was not an easy thing to do. But Bush was able to uh, get First of all, uh, his much criticized at the time five-year budget agreement in which he, uh, Foley and Mitchell made him eat his words, so to speak, of read my lips, no new taxes. But he got a package that, that had three and a half times the spending cuts as the taxes he accepted, and the tax he accepted was a gasoline tax that had not been adjusted for inflation in nearly a decade. And and even though um, after the revolt of, of, if you want to call it that, of the, some of the Republicans, where he lost some of the support that they had assured him he had, uh, the Democrats changed it to uh, some of the gas tax to an increase in the highest end personal income tax rate from 28 to 31. Even though all that came together, what he did is, is achieved a package of spending cuts and new budgeting rules that put a cap on growth and spending and new rules that required new programs to be paid for so that that uh, budget agreement produced all the surpluses of the 90s that everybody else likes to brag about. Uh, and produced the growth period, which is one of the most uh, dynamic growth periods the country ever had. Now, you were there. How do you explain his defeat in the election of uh, 1992? Well, I refer to it as a combination of things that I put under, uh, also under the umbrella of the Churchill effect. 
And I remind people that in World War II, Winston Churchill led England uh, against the Nazis and, and the coalition of allies against the Nazis and, and really was the heart and soul of keeping it all together and inspiring England to put up its great resistance and was the hero, if you will, of World War II for the British. And yet, even uh, just before the war ended, uh, when Britain had a new election, they voted Churchill out because they wanted now to start looking inward and, and looking towards another political party, perhaps, to lead the domestic changes now that the foreign policy pressures of war had been relieved. Well, I think the same thing happened to George Bush after the Soviet Union collapsed and he kicked Saddam out of Kuwait. The world exhaled a bit uh, politically, and not only did Bush lose, but Mrs. Thatcher had been kicked out of uh, her control of her party by her own party. Mitterrand lost his election. Cole eventually lost his election. Gorbachev himself lost. Uh, uh, and uh, other leaders like Mulroney and the Japanese prime minister all lost. As the world kind of looked and, and uh, felt this relief from the confrontation of two superpowers, and, and everybody decided to look at different political parties to do different things within their own countries. In addition to that, of course, there was Ross Perot, and Perot comes in as a third-party candidate and takes 19% of the vote, two-thirds of which uh, should have been Bush's. That alone was, was uh, enough to cause the defeat. And the third reason is another, uh, there's another interesting reason which has some applicability as we look at politics today, and that is uh, since... Eisenhower, no party has, uh, in the United States since 1952, no party has controlled the White House for more than eight years except once, and that, of course, is the four years of George Herbert Walker Bush succeeding Ronald Reagan. But there seems to be a tendency in this country that every eight years or less, we, we tend to clean out the White House of one party and put a new party in. And, of course, uh, the election in 2016 will be the eight years of Obama will be up. And uh, and uh, we'll see whether this, this trend, this pattern of history to make party changes in the White House will continue. But I think in combination, those three effects combined together uh, made it an awfully tough election for George Bush to win. Now, one of the things we haven't talked about, the character and the personality of George Bush. What can you add to that? You know, let's go back to the title of the of the of the book, The Quiet Man. Um, George Bush's mother admonished him once uh, by saying, "George, uh, don't brag and bend your knees when you volley." Uh, a reference to tennis, and and really, there's two messages in that that, that Bush took to heart. The first about not bragging. He really hated to talk about himself and. And I actually took the title from a line that he used himself in the 1988 acceptance speech at the Republican convention when he got the, confirmed as the candidate for the Republican Party for president. His line was, uh, I'm a quiet man, but I hear the quiet people that others don't. And, and that was really a definition of his style. But the second message um, that his mother gave him, bend your knees when you volley, really carried with it much more than, than uh, you might gather from it at first. What she was saying when she said that is, look, w whatever you do, volley or, or in, in tennis or anything else, there's a right way to do it. 
And so when you do anything, do it the right way. And, and to George Bush, those two suggestions, admonitions from his mother, really influenced much of what he did. He was always willing to share the limelight uh, with others like Mrs. Thatcher and Mitterrand and Cole in terms of the unification of Europe. Uh, he did the same thing domestically when he uh, pushed hard for certain pieces of legislation and got, got results like the Clean Air Bill and the Civil Rights Bill and the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Crime Bill and, and restructuring agriculture and so on. He shared that he was very willing to share the credit with others. And, and most of all, when he did things, um, such as trying to get Saddam out of Kuwait, he made sure that, that we did it the right way. Not just do it, but do it right. Finally, what is your opinion of, of George Herbert Walker Bush? Where does he stand as far as the, the presidents of the 20th century? Well, you know, if you take the polls just came out, the polls just came out a few months ago asking people which of the, the living presidents uh, they thought was the best. And, and George Bush and, and Clinton had a tie, although the tiebreaker, in my opinion, is, is those that uh, when you look at the negative side of it, Bush came out much better than Clinton on the negative side. So uh, he is certainly being appreciated a little bit more by short-term history here. And I think uh, as people look back more and more, history is going to continue to treat them better and better. And I just hope that what I've put together between the two covers of this book will help people understand the breadth of his success and really the the significance of his success at both domestic and foreign policy. I think he's going to uh, continue to move up the ranks as, as history takes a better and deeper look of what he accomplished. Governor Sununu, thank you for your contribution to history. The name of the book is The Quiet Man. I look forward to reading it soon, and I hope our listeners look to it again. The name of the book is Quiet Man by Governor John Sununu. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Michael, thank you. I've tried to make it an easy read and a good read for political junkies, so I hope folks enjoy it. Thanks for the chance to be on. Thank you. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There's no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. 
Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our interviews. One with uh, John Sununu, Governor John Sununu, who was chief of staff to George Herbert Walker Bush, and to Brad Berzer, who talked about Andrew Jackson. You know, I know some historians today are saying that uh, taking Andrew Jackson in a different light, that Andrew Jackson transporting the Cherokees into Oklahoma actually saved their culture, saved their tribe, and benefited more in the long run than they may have suffered during the uh, during the Trail of Tears. I don't know. It's controversial, I guess, if, if 19th century politics can be controversial. I don't know. I, I think things are much more interesting, and history is not just one thing all the time, and I think you have to be there. My Choctaw relatives were advised by Jackson to become citizens of the U.S., to remain on their land, and they did. So they left the Choctaw tribe, became U.S. citizens, and stayed on their land in Mississippi. Okay. Well, thank you for tuning in this week. Now, we may have news and scheduling changes in the next couple of weeks, and we'll talk about that on our next show. In the meanwhile, thank you for listening to us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. my family if something happens to me. What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. 